Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Dude, what a good day. Man, thanks for hanging out with me today. It's good to sit down and chat with you a bit. Good to hang out. Thanks for being here. Now, let me ask you this. Growing up, did your parents ever have a favorite child? Like, they say they don't, but they really do. Like, did it ever bug you what this favorite got away with? Now, you remember how Israel, Jacob Israel, uh, how he had a favorite wife, Rachel? Like, the first time he sees her, like, the Top Gun theme is playing along, like, take my breath away. You know how it starts, like, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, like, wind blowing through her hair. Like, he, he, he works for seven years, and it seemed but a few days, like, this guy is smitten with her, right? And then she tragically dies young. You want to make any guesses who his favorite boys are? If you randomly by chance guessed Joseph and Benjamin, ding, 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 you would be right. So, so Joseph's 17 years old, right? And he's out working with the livestock again. They're, they're ranchers principally. This is how their life is, is working with the livestock. And he's out with um, Gad, Asher, Dan, and Naphtali. And it says in Genesis 37 verse 2 that Joseph brought into his father their evil report. If you don't get that, what it means is that he's a freaking little tattletale. Like <laughs> nothing drives me more insane. Like if, if somebody's going to like lose a limb, great, tell me, warn me. Um, but when they're like coming up to me and is like, they won't let me play with the dog. I just want to throw dirt clods. Dude, he's 17 years old and he's a snitch. Add to that the fact that the Israel loved Joseph more than all his children and made him a coat of many colors. Uh, so with all of this favoritism, you want to make any predictions about how Joseph's brothers treated this favorited snitch of a teenager? Well, it says when his brethren saw that their father loved Joseph more than them, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. Now, you've seen this around in your house, right? Hey, stupid. Where'd you get your dumb face, dumb face? I, man, that's interesting. Like, it's not that they are being mistreated that makes them angry. It's that they feel that they are somehow lesser because of somebody else's good fortune. That's a dangerous thing, right? Elder Holland says, Brothers and sisters, there are going to be times in our lives when someone else gets an unexpected blessing or receives some special recognition. May I plead with us not to be hurt and certainly not to feel envious when good fortune comes to another person. We are not diminished when someone else is added upon. Furthermore, envy is a mistake that just keeps on giving. Obviously, we suffer a little when some, when some misfortune befalls us, but envy requires us to suffer all good fortune that befalls everyone we know. What a bright prospect that is, downing another quart of pickle juice every time anyone around you has a happy moment. End quote. That is not a good way to live. But I got to be real, Joseph is not helping his cause. First is the, the tattletale snitch, but then he has some crazy dreams. And he goes out of his way to tell everyone about them. 
First, he dreams that they're all out in the field harvesting wheat or barley or something. And when you harvest, you, you cut down the stalks of grain and you bundle them into sheaves. Think like hay bales, but for wheat. This makes it easier to transport them to the threshing floor where they're going to separate the, the actual grain kernel from the, the casing and the stalk. Anyway, in his dream, he and all his brothers are there. And Joseph tells his brothers, my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. And his brothers are like, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? Now, remember, he is basically like the youngest kid in this family of 12. And they hated him all the more of the dream because of the dream and what he has said. And honestly, honestly, I'm not blaming them. This kid sounds like a punk. Then he had another dream and he told uh, it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And he told his father as well as his brothers and his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers are jealous of him. So honestly, they, they decide to do something about it. His brothers are out um, taking care of the flock or out in Shechem. And Israel says to Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them so you can snitch on them. And Joseph said, That's me. I'm the man for the job. A snitch at your service. And when his brothers see him approaching out in the distance. They're like, dude, aren't you sick of this punk yet? Like, I cannot tell you how sick I am of seeing his face. Aren't you sick of getting dirt kicked in your face? That's not your Libre, in case you're wondering. <laughs> they're like, well, let's kill him. And they're like, what? No, I'm serious. He sucks. Let's get rid of him. Now, Reuben is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Mucho take it easy for like two seconds. Like, like, feel free to beat the crap out of this doodle. But like, let's just throw him in a pit or something. And and he convinces them to do this. They throw him in the pit. And Reuben's thinking he can set him free later. Um, So the other guys don't know that this is necessarily Reuben's plan to set them free. So they agree not to kill him immediately. But maybe in a minute. So Joseph strolls up, they rip his coat off him, chuck him in a pit, and then sit down to eat a ham sandwich for lunch. Reuben has to go off and run an errand. And while they're sitting there, they see a caravan of traders creeping along across the open landscape towards Egypt. And Judah, he's son number four, he says, what if there were a way we could be free from Joseph and make some money? And everybody's like, I see where you're going with this. So they approach the caravan and they sell Joseph into slavery. No more than he deserves, right? For 20 pieces of silver. Now time out. Tell me you are seeing a parallel to Jesus here and Joseph. Like Jesus and Judas sold out, right? Like please, sneak peek right here. Like favorite son, loses his high position and descends into darkness in a foreign land and through this condescension saves his family. This good stuff. There's types and shadows all over the place. Be looking for it. 
Well, after Joseph is long gone, Reuben returns from his errand, intending to pull Joseph out of the pit, rescue him. But then he sees he is not there and loses it in worry. Now, in the text, the brothers don't seem to let Reuben in on it. Um, it, They just see that, that Joseph is not in the pit anymore. And so to cover their tracks, they take Joseph's coat. They kill a, a, a kid, like a goat, small goat, and dip the coat in the, the blood. And then they bring the coat to Israel and they say, hey, we just found this. Is it Joseph's? Now they don't outright lie. And I, I don't know, I feel like especially the teenagers I interact with, they're like, yeah, I didn't. No, I like it's, it's like so fringy and justification here. But what they didn't expect is that Israel, Jacob, sinks into a grief and into a depression that, that just hangs over this family. And it's this darkness, this heaviness is going to color their family interactions for decades to come. As for Joseph... He makes it to Egypt, where he is sold at the slave market to a man named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's, a captain of Pharaoh's guard. And we'll leave him there for a minute. But meanwhile, you remember whose idea it was to sell Joseph? Judah. Good job. Uh, Let's just check in on Judah and his life for a minute while Joseph is gone. So Judah has a grown son named Ur, And I got to say, I think it's a dumb name. Anyway, Er, or maybe it's Er, I don't know, my Hebrew pronunciation here. I'm going to call him Er, I like that better. Marries a girl named Tamar. But Er is a wicked dude, and the Bible text says, because of this, God facilitates Er's demise, and that leaves Tamar a widow. Now, there are not a lot of employment opportunities for widowed women in the ancient world or, let's say, women in general in the ancient world. So the custom of the time was um, to get this widow an heir, a child, so that she would have someone to care for her as she ages. So to get an heir, the custom uh, of the time would be for the next oldest brother and failing that, a close relative, and, and we'll talk m- m- way more about this in depth when we get to Ruth. But the close male relative of the deceased husband would take the widow as his wife, sometimes even as a plural wife, and would help her get pregnant so that there would be someone to care for her as she got older. Well, Ur's brother is named Onan. So Onan marries Tamar. But he's kind of a selfish dude, and he knows that any child he has with Tamar will be considered Ur's child, and he'll have to raise this kid and put all of this effort into raising this child. But the child himself won't work for him, and will just work for Tamar and for his dead brother Ur. So when Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother... Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing an offspring for his brother. Dude, the Old Testament is not concerned with your blushing sensibilities here, right? It's just stark. 
Well, the, the authors of the biblical set text say that because of Onan's shadiness, he also dies. So Judah says to Tamar, my, my younger son Shelah is not old enough to get married yet, so go back, live with your folks, and when Shelah is old enough, we'll take care of you, I promise. But Shelah grows up and Judah does not keep his promise. And so Tamar comes up with a plan to get posterity to carry on her family line. She hears that Judah will be traveling to shear sheep in Timnah, so she puts on a veil, dresses like a prostitute, and goes to sit along the way to Timnah. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And she says, What will you give me to sleep with you? He says, I'll give you a young goat from my flock. And she says, You obviously don't have this now. She says, Will you give me something as a pledge, as a guarantee, until you send this young goat? And he says, well, what do you want? And she replies, I want your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. So he gives the seal, the staff, and the cord to her, sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant by him. After she leaves, she takes off the veil, puts on her widow clothes again. Now, Judah does try to pay his debt off. He sends a friend with a goat to pay the prostitute and get his seal and staff back. But when the friend asks around, they're like, dude, there's no prostitute around here. So he shrugs his shoulders and said, ah, that's weird. Well, three months pass by, and now there is no question that Tamar's ego is prego, and Judah is ready to invoke severe consequences on her. But as she's being brought out to face these consequences, she sends a message to Judah saying, quote, I am pregnant by the man who owns these and sends out the seal, the cord, and the staff. And she says, see if you recognize whose seal, cord, and staff these are. Yeah, that's not awkward at all. Judah, to his credit, owns it, says she has been more righteous than him. Um... And then keeps her, helps her, whatever, whatever, right? When she goes into labor, she actually has twins whose names are Ferez, Ferez, and Zerah. Now, why is this story in the Bible it's seemingly so randomly interjected here? Why, are they, why is it important that we know these names? Well, years later, centuries later, Matthew chapter 1, ver, uh, verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, he begot Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judah and his brethren. And Judah begat Pharez and Zerah of Tamar, and Pharez begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram, on and on. Did you catch in there, right? Jesus Christ, Matthew says, is the lineage of Abraham. He is the true promised king to come through David, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And it is, they are very careful to say his lineage comes through Pharez, 
the son of Tamar. In fact, there's not that many uh, women even mentioned in this lineage. Matthew goes out of his way to mention Tamar. Like, I like how Lisa Palo says this. She, she says, why would Matthew call out Tamar by name? Why would God purposely include such a scandal in the lineage of Jesus? She goes on and she says, maybe because scandalous sin needs scandalous grace. Like it should shock us a little bit to see Tamar and Judah in Jesus's family tree because we're so accustomed of thinking that that position should be earned and deserved. The good conduct, not bad conduct, is rewarded. And this isn't just bad conduct. It's scandalous behavior. A firstborn so bad he is killed by God. A secondborn so evil he is killed by God. A father-in-law so callous he refuses protection owed to his own daughter-in-law. Frequents a prostitute. And a young widow so desperate she plays the harlot. <laughs> Like, that's scandalous. The only answer for scandalous sin is scandalous grace. God's grace is shocking. If you take a second and you really look at it, it's kind of offensive. It's completely unmerited, completely undeserved. It's outrageous, preposterous, excessive, unlimited. God's grace covers my scandalous sin and yours. Maybe we've forgotten how scandalous our sin really is. Or maybe we think our scandalous sin keeps us from God. But this story, Tamar's story, reminds us that the baby in the manger came to pay for our scandalous sin. And instead of inhaling in shock that Tamar would be included in Jesus's family tree. We exhale in relief that Jesus came to deliver sinners like us. We need only to look as far as Jesus's family tree to see the hope of Christmas, that the babe born in Bethlehem came to cover our immoral disgrace with his immaculate beauty, end quote. Man, I love that. Philip Yancey says it this way. He says, God's grace means there is nothing I can do to make God love me more and nothing I can do to make God love me less. It means that even that, that, I, that I, even I who deserve the opposite, am invited to take my place at the table of God's family, end quote. I can't tell you how good that is. This is not, don't, don't misread me. Do not deliberately mishear me. This is not an invitation to sin. This is not an invitation to, to be lazy. Instead, it is a bold proclamation of the love of God. It is a fiery witness of the grace of Jesus, his goodness and grandeur. There is nothing that is out of reach for him. Don't you dare believe it is you. Anyway, meanwhile, while this is all going down, Joseph is a slave in Egypt. 
But interestingly, instead of moping in misery, he's busy rising to the top. Now, I know it sounds cliche, but he literally is making the best of a bad situation. I, I gotta say, I didn't see this coming from this entitled little snitch, but he really rises up. And the, the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. He's a slave and is described as a prosperous man. Dude, we, we are saying that God is with him in slavery. This is fascinating. Man, I don't know. What is it about your perspective that keeps you from seeing God's grace right now in your life? Because he's there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was with a prosperous man. He was a prosperous man. Now, when Joseph's master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him Joseph success in everything he did, everything he did, Joseph found favor in Potiphar's eyes and he became Potiphar's attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted him with the care of everything he owned. And from the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed Potiphar's household because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built. He's handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Now, Come on, man. He's far away from home. This is a young man. I'm sure this rich guy is married to a, a beautiful woman. Nobody has to know. Nobody's going to know, right? But Joseph refused. He, he says, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? This girl is relentless, though. She comes at him day after day. And day after day, he refuses to go to bed with her. Heck, he refuses even to be with her. I, like, I think that's an important point. A, a sexual temptation can be such a strong magnetic draw he uh, what does he say he refuses even to be with her they don't there's an important point to remove yourself from the proximity of sin just make it harder to sin than than it is to sin make it difficult for yourself now one day he goes in the house to attend to his duties but nobody's in the house except for potiphar's wife and she grabs him by the cloak and she says Come to bed with me. And he doesn't even answer her. He leaves his cloak in her ha hand and he ran out of the house. Oh man, there's so much there. You got to think on that for a minute. But when she see, saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and run out of the house, she's embarrassed, angry at the rejection. She calls the servants to her and she says, Look! This Hebrew has been brought to us to make fun of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and he ran out of the house. And then she keeps his cloak beside her until 
Potiphar comes home and she tells him the whole story. She says, that Hebrew slave you brought us, he came to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and he ran out of the house. When Potiphar heard his wife's story, he says, this is how this slave treats me? And he burns with anger. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. Now, obviously, between Judah and Joseph, there's definitely some things to be said for chastity here. But I honestly don't know that I want to belabor it. So, so consider that and do with that what you will. But I do want to ask you something different. What do you think about Joseph's life right now? Has God abandoned him? Like, what does this story say about how God works in your life? Is God not watching when your kids get sick? I talked to a wonderful woman the other day who lost a grown son last year. And then shortly thereafter learned that her grown daughter, who has teenage kids of her own, had an inoperable brain tumor. And she found herself just pleading. Like, I can't even express to you the emotion in this woman's voice as she talked about pleading with God. Like, where is God in Joseph's story? And did you read the next line, though? But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him and showed him kindness. What? Nah, dude. Like, the, the authors cannot be seriously... Uh, They cannot be serious about this. You can't seriously stand here and make that argument that while Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him and showed him kindness. Stop. He's lost everything. His own family betrayed his trust. He is a slave and now he is in slave prison. I'm sure those accommodations are nice. Slave prison. That sounds like a place you want to go. But the authors really mean it when they say, While Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him and showed him kindness. You need to spend some time with that line. Let it roll around in your brain for a minute. Let that seep in. And he is there for years. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. And the warden, warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Hmm. hmm. Well, sometime later, the cup bearer and the baker of the king of Egypt were thrown into the same prison. Now, I don't know that you need a definition of what a baker is, but a cup bearer is historically or was historically an officer of pretty high rank in royal courts. Their duty was to pour and serve drinks at the royal table. And because there's a constant fear of poisoning, the cup bearer had to be a thoroughly trustworthy person. He would guard against poison in the king's cup and was sometimes required to swallow some of the drink before serving it. Because he's there in in such close confidential relations with the king, it often gives him a position of great influence. So anyways, the 
Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer are in the same slammer as Joseph. And after they'd been in custody for some time, Joseph sees them one morning and says, Why do you look so sad today? Now, the obvious answer is probably something like, Um, because we're in slave prison? But they say, We both had dreams, but there's no one here to interpret them. And Joseph replies, Don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said, In my dream, I saw a vine in front of me. And on the vine were three branches, and soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, and I squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and put the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Joseph says, This is what the dream means. The three branches are three days. And within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand again, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. Now, when the the baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he tells Joseph, he's like, "I, I had a dream too. In my dream, on my head were three baskets of bread. And in the top basket were all kind of kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. And Joseph says, this is what your dream means. Three baskets also are three days. And within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole. And birds will eat away your flesh. Dang. Three days later, it's Pharaoh's birthday. And he gives a feast for all his officials. And sure enough, he lifts up the head of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, but he impels the chief baker. And it all happens just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. But the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. So is God, right? And when two full years had passed, wait, did you hear that? Two more years! Two more years in slave prison in a dungeon! It's so unjust! It's so unfair. It's crap. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up, ugly and gaunt, and they stood beside those on the riverbank, and the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. I gotta be like, those are some bad tamales. <laughs> That's a weird dream, man. Cows eating cows. It's weird. And he fell asleep again and had a second dream. And in this dream, seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. And after them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. And the thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. And then Pharaoh woke up again. And in the morning, he was troubled by these dreams. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. And Pharaoh told them his dream. 
but nobody could interpret it for him. Then the chief cupbearer speaks up to Pharaoh and he says, Today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh, you remember when you were angry with me and you had me imprisoned with the chief baker? Well, while we were there, each of us had a dream. And each dream had its own meaning. And in prison, there's a young Hebrew man who told us our dreams and he interpreted them for us, giving us the interpretation and things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. So hearing this, Pharaoh sends for Joseph. He's brought from the dungeon. He's shaved and changed his clothes. Can't be bringing stinky slave prisoner in front of Pharaoh, right? And Pharaoh says to Joseph, I had a dream, but nobody can interpret it. But I've heard it said that you, when you hear dreams, can interpret them. Joseph has an interesting reply. He says, I cannot do it. But God can. Ah, this boy's, this boy's different. This boy's changed. So Pharaoh tells his dream to Joseph. And just like we've already said, and Joseph replies. It's just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do in Egypt. He's saying that fe- seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. But seven years of famine will follow. So the abundance of the land is going to be rich, but the famine is going to be severe. So the reason that God has given this dream to you in two forms is to firmly get this in your mind that this is what's going to happen. Here's what I would advise you to do, Pharaoh. Look for a discerning, wise man and put that individual in charge of the land of Egypt. And then let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land and take a tax of one-fifth of the harvest of e- in Egypt during the next seven years of abundance. Uh, tax all of this grain and store it up and keep it. This food is going to be held in reserve and not used until the seven years of famine come. Once it is, then we'll have enough food. Pharaoh listens to the plan. It seems like a good plan. He says, Can we find anyone like this man, meaning Joseph, in whom the Spirit of God is? Then Pharaoh says to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You're the right guy for the job. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh says to Joseph, I I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. He even takes off his signet ring, his seal from his finger, puts it on Joseph's finger, dresses him in the robes of fine linen, puts a gold chain around his neck, gold chain, and and makes him ride in a chariot at his second in command. Uh, People shout when Joseph comes out, make way! And he puts him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Uh, and then he, he, he makes him Egyptian, basically, renames him and marries him off to the daughter of a, a, a powerful priest in, there in Egypt. And Joseph, it says in the record, was 30 years old when he entered into the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> 30? I don't know if you remember the beginning of our story. How old was he when it starts, when he's out there in the field being a tattletale? 
He's 17. 13 years he has been a slave in prison. And in prison, I guess we'd say slave prison, kind of the same thing. Man, what do we do about this? What does this say about God? What does it say about God's plans? What does it say about how he interjects with his children? Now, listen, I, I hope this isn't sacrilegious, but I can't help but think of Harry Potter here. I know, I know, I know, I know. Just, just humor me. You remember in The Order of the Phoenix when Dumbledore just ignores Harry? He doesn't tell him why. He just ignores him. Harry is so isolated, attacked by Dementors, suffering, and the one he's put his confidence in has seemingly left him adrift in an ocean full of sharks. And then later, Dumbledore brings uh, Harry in and commissions him to find and destroy Horcruxes, but leaves him almost completely bereft of any instructions of how to do it. It's so deeply frustrating, and there's so much suffering associated with it. I can't help but hear uh, Albus's brother, Albaforth, plainly stating the frustration. Harry says, he, he left me a job. Albaforth, did he now? Nice job, I hope. Pleasant. Easy. Sort of thing you'd expect an unqualified wizard kid to be able to do without overstretching themselves. Harry, it's, it's not easy, no, but I've got to. Got to? Why got to? He's dead, referring to Dumbledore. Isn't he? Let it go, boy, before you follow him. Save yourself. See, Dumbledore sees a bigger picture here. And the pain Harry's going through, well, it's hard, but it's necessary in this master scheme. And when Snape sees the painful plan laid bare, he asks Dumbledore, So the boy must die, Snape said quite calmly. And Voldemort himself must do it, Severus. That is essential, Dumbledore replies. Another long silence. Then Snape said, I thought all these years that we were protecting him for her, for Lily. We have protected him because it has been essential to teach him, to raise him, to let him try his strength, said Dumbledore, his eyes still tight shut. Meanwhile, the connection between them grows ever stronger, a parasitic growth. Sometimes I have thought he suspects it himself. I know if, if I know him, he will have arranged matters so that when he does set out to meet his death, it will truly mean the end of Voldemort. Dumbledore opened his eyes. Snake looked horrified. You have kept him alive so he can die at the right moment? Don't be shocked, Severus. How many men and women have you watched die? Lately, only those I could not save, said Snape. He stood up. You have used me, meaning? I've spied for you and lied for you, put myself in mortal danger for you. Everything was supposed to be to keep Lily Potter's son safe. Now you tell me you have been raising him like a pig for slaughter? But this is touching, Severus, said Dumbledore seriously. Have you grown to care for the boy after all? End quote. Now when Harry is finally prepared to see 
where this long, painful journey has taken him, he willingly walks into the forest. Now that's probably quite enough potter for some of you, but listen to me. Listen to me. What if God knows more than you do? What if the suffering you are asked to bear is part of a bigger strategy and you're just too close to the action to see the full movement? Can you trust him? So Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sands of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. And before the years of famine came, he had two sons. The first he named Manasseh, which means to forget. And he names him this because God has made me forget all my troubles and all my father's household. And the second son he names Ephraim, which means fruitful. And he says, because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Ah. Now there's a line to take some time with. Because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.